Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today, we feature Howard Hendricks, also known as The Prof. For over 50 years, he was a professor at the Dallas Theological Seminary. He mentored many Christian leaders, including Chuck Swindoll, Tony Evans, Joseph Stowell, and David Jeremiah. Today, Howard Hendricks presents a sermon on How to Teach. Running is fast becoming an American addiction. Wherever I go, they're pounding the pavement. Whenever I get the urge to run, I lie down and it goes away. <laughs> but I have made one significant observation. Before the race, the runners stretch their muscles. Before the baseball game, the players take their turn at bat. They run their wind sprints. Before the symphony, the orchestra tunes up. And I believe there is a necessary preparation before learning becomes maximally profitable. I want to begin tonight with a definition of the law of readiness. Learning tends to be most effective when the student is adequately prepared. One of the great problems in education is that the student comes cold to class. You see, there are essentially two options. Let's suppose that you are teaching an adult class. You are teaching the book of Isaiah. And let's suppose that a miracle has taken place. You actually get fully 60 minutes of teaching time. Kind of a millennial experience. <laughs> and when it happens, you are convinced you've died and gone to heaven. They've eliminated the opening exercises. That term has always fascinated me. Most of them open little and exercise less. But you've got 60 minutes of time. And you say, would you open your Bibles to Isaiah 27? What's in Isaiah 27? Who knows? Somebody might ask, who cares? But you are a very competent teacher. And by the time you get into this lesson, they are beginning to become excited about Isaiah 27. In fact, by the time they get to the end of the hour, they've got a whole collection of questions. They've got some problems. And furthermore, they've got some deep interests that you have aroused. But the time is gone. Next week you walk in, would you please open your Bibles to Isaiah 28? What's in Isaiah 28? Who knows? Maybe somebody doesn't really care. 
and this is the way we work our way through the book. I want to propose for you an alternative. Instead of starting right at the outset of a class and trying to build interest, build an understanding of the problems that this passage solves, build answers to questions, you need to start before that class begins so that by the time you start the class, you are really developing momentum. And hopefully, when you finish the class, the students have found answers to their questions, solutions to their problems, and even greater interests. And they are going to continue to study that passage, perhaps on their own, perhaps with a group of individuals. Now I want to talk to you briefly about the values of assignments. There are three of them. Number one, they precipitate thinking. I call them the mental warm-up. The mind is preheated. It's working before they ever arrive in class. So the student comes aware of the problems, of the issues, full of questions. He or she does not come cold to the material. Their curiosity has been piqued. Their interest has been aroused. Their questions have been surfaced. The second value is that assignments provide a background, a foundation on which to build. There are many of you who are teaching adolescents and adults, and you need to understand that these individuals bring a great deal to the educational experience. But frequently they never get the opportunity to express themselves. They never get an opportunity to see that passage in terms of its relationship to their life. Third, good assignments develop habits of independent study. We mentioned earlier in our sessions that one of the goals that we have as teachers is to develop lifelong learners. Does it ever disturb you that there are people in your class, in your church, who have been coming for ten 15, 20 years and still don't know the name of the game. Still don't know who's on first. Still can't answer the most elementary questions about the Christian life. They've been under the word, but they haven't been in it for themselves. Another area we need to invade, what are the characteristics of good assignment. If we ought to be using these, they are a legitimate means and accomplish very essential purposes. Then what kind of assignment accomplish our objective? Two characteristics. Number one, it must be creative. It must be creative, not simply busy work. You see, that means you have a clear-cut objective. 
That means you have taken some time to prepare what you are going to do. In fact, if you will bear in mind that when everyone, anyone comes into a classroom, they always come with a different set of ability. This is one of the reasons why I love to work with high school students, love to work with adults from various backgrounds. And I've had the privilege of teaching people who were at the professional level. I have taught people who were underprivileged. I've taught men. I've taught women. I've taught doctors and lawyers. I've taught children. You name it, I've taught it. And every one of those groups will bring a different set of abilities. Here we are working with a group of high school kids. And people say to me, you know, you can't get these kids excited about the Word of God. I don't believe that. I believe our problem is we are not willing to put our hooks into the area of their interests. This kid's interested in music. So what do we do? We work him over because he buys into the music of this world. But we never say, hey, why don't you use that for the Lord? Why don't you write some songs? Why don't you write some lyrics? Ladies and gentlemen, the greatest musical genius ever to come out of the city of Dallas came out of an evangelical church. He led the Dallas Symphony Orchestra at 17 to a premier review. He led the New York Philharmonic at 23. The interesting thing is that evangelical church never once used his musical ability. And today he's far removed from Jesus Christ. One of the things that disturbs me more than anything else in our evangelical community is that we are killing all creativity. It's available, but we are not providing outlet. So when you structure something that's going to get them into the word for themselves. Make sure that it's creative. Secondly, make sure that it is thought-provoking. Now, I know that thinking is painful, but it can be profitable, particularly when it's under the direction of the Spirit of God, so that people come up with reasons why and suggestions for how they can implement this truth. I want to share with you just an interesting study, a study that shows that essentially predictability and impact have a direct correlation. The higher your predictability, the lower your impact. Conversely, the lower your predictability, the higher your impact. Please note, we are talking about methodology, not moral. The classic illustration is from the life of Jesus Christ. See, they never could figure him out. And one day the Herodians and the Pharisees got together. They never got together over anything. They wouldn't even be seen on the same side of the street, except when they had a common enemy. They said, let's, let's hit him with the problem of taxation. After all, the Herodians were pro-Rome. The Pharisees were anti-Rome. So we'll ask him a question. If he says he's for it, you nail him. If he says he's against it, we'll nail him. 
Hey, that's a good one. Boy, that's tremendous. Let's go. Uh, Lord, uh, uh, should a man pay taxes or not? He says, you got a coin? Hey, Roger, right here. Good. Whose inscription is it? Uh, Caesar's. Great. Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God. Who thought up this dumb question? <laughs> oh, it is so painful to go into many Christian churches and Bible studies, and it's so predictable you can fall asleep, and when you wake up, they'll be exactly where you predicted. Like the bishop of the Church of England who said, you know, wherever Paul went, they had a riot or a revival. And wherever I go, they serve tea. <laughs> By the way, what do they do where you go? Well, let's look at some problems. There are four major problems in applying this law. Number one. What do you do if they come unprepared? Yeah, that's, that's what I want to know. Anybody here ever face that problem? Don't raise your hands. We'll get universal conviction here. Say 98% of the people would never do it. So what do you do? Two things. Number one, you do it in class. When I begin a class for which I've had no opportunity to give them assignment to prepare them for that, I will say, men and women, let's turn to Romans 4. They open their Bible and I say, we're going to take the time to read the passage we're going to study. Now, please note carefully. I am going to place a question on the board. And while we are reading Romans 4, I want you to see if you can find the answer to that question. You know how most people do that? They read Romans 4 and when they get to the end say, now I have a question. They've forgotten all about it. The time to ask the question is at the front end before you read. Then when you read, they know what they're looking for. And furthermore, it builds their confidence because they are beginning to see, hey, I saw that. And as we're going to see, that's one of the major reasons why people don't get into the Word. Secondly, tap their experience. I went into a class some time ago, and I was warned. I must have been warned ten times before I got into the class. Now, you need to understand, Dr. Hendricks, I know you like to get people involved, but these people will not get involved. They will not talk. So I said, okay. Thank you very much for the information. And I went into the class, got a pack of three by five, and I said, you know, I have a lot of confidence in you people. You people come from a variety of backgrounds. You're involved in a number of businesses, different communities. And what I like to do is give these three by five cards to you. Don't put your name on them, but I want you to write down on those cards the three things that are really kicking the slats out of your life. If you could get an answer for anything, these are the things. We took about two or three minutes while they filled in the cards, sent them to the front, and I started off the class by going through and reading a number of these cards 
by the time I got to that place, people were putting their hands up and saying, that's the type of thing we ought to be talking about in here. And before long, I had a hard time shutting it down. You see, if you come into a class convinced they are not going to participate, then don't be disappointed if they don't. If you come into a class to tap their experience and ask them, what are you facing in your school, in your home, in your job, you will get more input in terms of people's needs than you can ever handle. Well, number two, the second problem, what do you do if they lack confidence? And for those of you working with adults, you need to understand and take it by faith. The average adult has a very low level of confidence. When I first started my ministry to the cowboys, I can remember coming into one of the classes and saying, men, I'm going to teach you how to study the Bible. It was a riot to watch the response. I mean, it was not only visual, it was verbal. Hey, Doc, thanks a lot, but you don't understand. We're a group of football players. And I can still remember Roger Staubach saying, yeah, and that comes from one of the linemen. And the place came down. So I got him into a passage of Scripture, and I said, now look, you know, anytime you want to ask a question, you know the sign, time out. So we no sooner get in the opening part of the thing. So what's the question, man? Hey, where was Jesus born? That's a neat question. Anybody got an idea? Guy said, well, I think he was born in Jerusalem. The guy said, no, I don't know where he's born, but I don't think that's it. You see, they kept feeding to me. You know, you're a cemetery professor. <laughs> See, you're a professional. You, you can study that. But I can't. I said, yes, you can. No. Yeah. Huh. I said, I'm going to show you. You see, if they have no confidence in you, i got news for you. You're dead in the water. If you are a teacher, you've got to generate confidence. And if they have confidence in you, then your job is to take that confidence and replace it in them so that they develop confidence in themselves. I can study this. I can do it. And you show them how. Third, what do you do if a person dominates a class. You ever have a person in your class who was like Niagara Falls? Sort of motor mouth. You know, just the person who having nothing to say said, I'll give you three options as to how to handle this. Number one, be sure to express appreciation for their contributions. When I get a person who's constantly got his hand in the air, and can assure you that somewhere along the line, I'm going to get next to that guy, next to that gal, and say, hey, I want you to know I deeply appreciate your interest in this class. Man, if I could get everybody in this class as interested in you as you are, I'd have it made. Number two, I ask them to do me a favor. 
And I do it this way. After I've said, you know, I deeply appreciate your interest. Boy, you're really into this thing. W would you do me a favor? Oh, sure, if I can. You know, anything to help you. <laughs> I said, have you noticed there are a lot of people in the class who, who don't participate? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I noticed there nobody says anything. I said, would you help me to get those people in? Just hold back a little bit, and let's see if you and I can get the rest of the class involved in the process. We comes right up out of the rocks. Number three. This is important. I call on him. That's the first time in his life he has been called on. He didn't need to be called on. Even when you didn't ask for a contribution, he gives it. Had a guy one day say to me, hey, thanks a lot for calling on me. Because I kind of think you appreciate what I have to say. I said, I'm coming through loud and clear, man. You see, you don't want to kill anyone. What you are trying to do is to make sure that no one dominates it so that the rest of the people can get into the act. Problem number four. What do you do when a person is afraid to participate? See, many of you are going back to situations where people never participate. And I'm going to give you four suggestions that I have used. Number one, encourage people to participate and affirm them when they do. Encourage them to participate and affirm them when they do. And I often do it this way. You need to understand that in this class, the only foolish question is the unasked question. Because it is like an unremoved splinter. It will fester. We don't laugh at questions in this class. We take them very seriously. And when somebody gives me a contribution, I say, fantastic, man. Did you think of that by yourself? <laughs> And man, we even go up and write it on the board. I had one guy say, hey, look, mine on the board. He came in after the class to bring his friends in to see what we had written on the board. He said, I think he's going to publish it. <laughs> you see, one of the problems is that many of us in teaching are educated beyond our intelligence. See, we've been in this game a long time, and we know the answers, beloved. So when we get this new convert in, and he brings up this utterly ridiculous and simplistic suggestion, we say, well, yeah, thanks a lot. I mean, got to start somewhere. Uh, you have never seen a human being get as excited as I do. I froth at the mouth and fairly need to be led away. Man, I'm absolutely climbing the walls. Do you mean to tell me, lady, that you came up with that from that passage? I think in all of the years that I've been studying that, I never saw that. That's great. Put it out. What other good contribution you have? Oh, you know, I didn't know it was so significant. <laughs> but what happens when they ask you a question you can't answer? What do you do? Tell them. You don't know. 
See, the reason he doesn't want to participate is that his motto is it's better to to keep your mouth closed and appear dumb than to open it and remove all doubt. When a guy asks me a question that I can't answer, I say, man, that's terrific. Let me write that down. I don't have an answer for that, but I'll try to get you one. So you don't have to pull the wool over the eyes. What happens if you get to a threatening one? We have Bible studies for lost people. We advertise them as the classes in which you need to know nothing to get in. And they come in and droll. We were in one one day in the gospel by Mark, and this guy puts his hand up. I said, yeah, man, you got an answer. You got a question. He says, hey, you don't mean to tell me that you're saying that Jesus Christ is God, are you? Now, can you imagine what would happen in the average church if somebody asked, made a statement like that? Well, where did we pick up that pagan, you know? <laughs> you listen very carefully to me because this could mean the eternal salvation of people. See, I make a hero out of that person. I say, Jim, that's an incredible question. That's right on the heart of the issue. Did you hear what Jim said? You didn't, Jim? Run that by again. The interesting thing is, oftentimes, Jim never hears the answer I give, but he picks up the attitude. But you scorch him in that chair, and that's the last question he will ask. The second suggestion I want to give you is graduate the experience. I like to get people involved in this kind of participation by, first of all, asking them to come up with what they found in the passage for themselves. Now, most people can share with themselves. You know, that's not threatening. They're not going to laugh at themselves, usually. So we start with that. Then the next thing that we do is we take them up to what we call neighbor nudging. We've discovered that most people can share with one other person. In fact, turn to your neighbor, I will say, and tell them what you saw in the passage, and then let them tell you what they saw. And if one says, well, I didn't see anything in there, they haven't lost faith. After they have become used to this, then we're going to get them to the place where they are able to participate as a class. And it usually starts with the extrovert. And I might add, it usually starts with people saying, this is probably a dumb question, but I've been wanting to ask this for a long time. And what they have told you is, you've got the greatest compliment you have gotten. That you have created an atmosphere in which a person who wanted to ask a question for years that he thinks is a dumb question, finally is free to ask. Third, if people are afraid to participate, you're going to have to exercise great patience. You see, I go into a class often, and I ask a question, and everybody looks at me. So I rephrase the question, and they... Give me that puppy dog look. Do you ever look at your dog when you're talking to him and he goes? 
And I've had them literally say to me, uh, we, we don't talk in here. <laughs> you, you tell us. You know, you're the pro. <laughs> I say, you're the student. I have more confidence in you than I have in my tribe. So I expect you to talk in here. So I'm going to ask you that question again. And then I sit here and look at him. <laughs> Fascinating. Because it's about that time. <coughs> People are incredibly embarrassed by silence. But I'm very patient. I can wait as long as they can. They're not going to talk. I'm not going to move. And that's when I'll get that key question. Well, I can see you're expecting us to talk. So I'll tell you what I think. It's, it's real dumb, but this is what I think. I said, you think that? Yeah, I, I think that. Then it isn't dumb, man. I want to hear it. And what you do is you break the barrier. See, some of those people have been sitting in those seats for years. They got hardening of the categories. A fourth, when they are afraid to participate, give them some notes. See, most people do not know how to take notes. If you don't believe it, pick up some of the notes that people leave in your class. I do this regularly when I go to a church. I just do a little janitorial work for the organization. It's never a part of the contract. Well, I just walk around and pick up some notes that people have taken on a message. Really interesting. They'll write down, dog, because I used an illustration of a dog. I have people come by at the door and say, you know, I had an Eskimo dog too. <laughs> and I have the strongest urge to say, really, what was the point? So what you are doing is engaging people in a training process. And what you do is begin by basic outlines. Little by little, you pull the stuff out of it. So they have to do a little filling in. But by now, they know how to pick out the main points. They don't write down dog. They write down what the dog illustration is teaching. And what you are doing is raising a crop of people who know how to listen intelligently. Just one word of warning I want to give you. And that is once you get them over the barrier and get them into discovery learning, you'll never get them back. It may take you a long time to get to your objective, but once you get there, they're not going to be satisfied until they are deeply involved in the process. Let's take a few moments as we wrap up our series to do some review. If you boil all of those laws down, they essentially call for a passion to communicate. We had a Sunday school convention in Moody Memorial Church many years ago. 
A number of us were participating on the program, and during the lunch break, we went across the street to a hamburger stand, which was then located across from Moody Church. The place was filled, so we were standing in line. There were three of us, and there was a little old lady. I assumed that she was up in her 60s, 70s. I found out later she was 83 years of age. She had a badge, so we knew she was attending the Sunday school convention, and when a table opened for four, we said, would you like to join us? She said, I would love to. So we engaged her in conversation. I said, uh, you teach a Sunday school class? She said, oh, yes, sir. I envision in my mind a class of senior citizens, elderly women. But I asked her, what class do you teach? She said, sir, I teach a class of junior high boys. junior high boy. She said, yes, sir. I said, how many boys do you have in your class? She said, 13. Oh, I said, that's wonderful. You come from a large church? She said, no, sir. It's very small. I said, how many do you have in your Sunday school? Oh, she said, about 65. And I said, you have 13 boys in your class? She said, that's right. I said, what are you doing here at the convention? Well, she said, sir, I am on a pension. My husband died a number of years ago. This is the first time that the Sunday school convention has come close enough to my home that I could afford to attend. She said, I live in Upper Michigan. Now, people who aren't familiar with that area do not understand that Upper Michigan is a long way from Chicago. She said, I caught a Greyhound bus last night, and I've been riding all night. And this morning I went to two of the workshops, and they were very profitable. She said, I just came to the Sunday school convention to learn something that would make me a better teacher. And three guys crawled out underneath the door. I thought of all of the first-class frauds I have met across America who, if they had 13 boys in a Sunday school of 65, would have been breaking their arms, patting themselves on the back. Who? Me go to a Sunday school convention? Man, I can tell them how to do it. But you see, she was tipping her hand. For your information, today, there are 84 young men in the ministry all the product of that one woman, 22 of them graduates of our seminary. And if you ask me what is the secret of that woman's impact, I would give you an altogether different answer than had you asked me 20 years ago. But since you waited this long to ask me, I'll tell you. Most people think it's because of her methodology. I think it's because of her passion to communicate. And as we come to the end of this series, my great heart's concern for you 
is that God will give you a passion that will never die. A passion to communicate. Because I have discovered, men and women, that when I find a person who really gets a passion to communicate to children, to young people, to adults, they will go to any limit to accomplish that objective. Everyone, Jesus said, after he is fully trained, will be just like his teacher. You've been listening to Dr. Howard G. Hendricks. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.